KPBS On Demand is supported by the Museum of Contemporary Art San Diego, offering visitors to the La Jolla campus special exhibitions, collection galleries, coastal vistas, seaside dining, and more. MCASD.org. Kids 5 to 11 could have a COVID vaccine come November. So we want to be ready. I don't think it's going to happen overnight, but first week of November is a good guess. I'm Jade Hindman with Maureen Cavanaugh. This is KPBS Midday Edition. Raising awareness about domestic violence and how to get help. You just have to find the courage to say something. The main way to break the silence is just speaking it out. And and it's not always easy. A new approach to conservation means not everything can be saved. And film critic Beth Accomando talks 007. That's ahead on Midday Edition. KPBS On Demand is supported by UC San Diego, offering the online Master of Data Science program, a journey through computation, data analysis, and real-world applications. Learn more about the online Master of Data Science program from UC San Diego at omds.ucsd.edu. Anticipation is growing for the FDA meeting plan tomorrow, which may result in a new emergency use authorization for vaccines in children aged 5 through 11. In the run-up to the meeting, the White House announced plans on how it will distribute the vaccine quickly once authorization is given. Here's what Dr. Anthony Fauci had to say about it over the weekend. So if all goes well and we get the regulatory approval and the recommendation from the CDC, It's entirely possible, if not very likely, that vaccines will be available for children from 5 to 11 within the first week or two of November. Here to talk more about where things stand with vaccines for children is Dr. Christian Ramers, infectious disease specialist with Family Health Centers and a member of San Diego County's COVID-19 Vaccine Clinical Advisory Group. Dr. Ramers, welcome. Thank you for having me. You just heard Dr. Fauci on when he thinks vaccines may be available to kids 5 through 11. Do you share his assessment targeting early November? I think that's about right. You know, we have a very methodical and careful process to get these vaccines approved. And the companies have submitted their data, I believe, almost uh, almost three, four weeks ago. Uh, that's from Pfizer to the FDA. The FDA just put out their initial assessment in writing, and they're going to be meeting tomorrow. And then, of course, this goes over to the CDC's Advisory Committee on Immunization Practices, and they're likely to meet the first week of November. And then it's about the logistics and the implementation of getting those vaccines out there onto shelves. I I can tell you that we are already able to put in pre-orders, those who are going to be vaccinating. So we want to be ready. I don't think it's going to happen overnight, but first week of November is a good guess. There seems to be a lot of anticipation for the FDA meeting tomorrow when it comes to the coronavirus vaccine for kids 5 to 11. What exactly will be discussed in tomorrow's meeting? Well, these meetings are always based on the data. And so far, all we've seen was the press release from the company from Pfizer up until today, when the FDA released actually all of its actual data from the clinical trials, including the very important safety data that everybody wants to see. Uh, The FDA kind of tipped their hat a little bit in their executive assessment here, saying that it looks like the benefits are going to outweigh the risks. And there's one thing on everybody's mind, which is, is myocarditis or or pericarditis going to be a big factor when we vaccinate younger children? 
Is an approval forthcoming? And if so, what type of approval and for which vaccine specifically? So I'd be careful with the word approval because what's, what they're talking about is an emergency use authorization. Uh, you know, this is what's given first and then an approval usually comes a little bit later. But we are talking about just Pfizer at this point. We've heard a little bit of preliminary information on the Moderna vaccine. And it's not exactly the same vaccine that was used in adults. It's a lower dose. So an adult Pfizer vaccine has 30 micrograms of material. And this was titrated down very carefully to 10 micrograms for this age group of 5 to 11. And there are some figures in the data here that show that that actually did result in lower side effects and yet still seem to provide the same level of immunity uh, compared to younger adults in the larger trials. And as you mentioned, new data related to the Moderna vaccine for children in that 5 to 11 age group was just released. What can you tell us about those findings? Sure. So this was uh, from a study called the Kid Cove study, and I think they recruited close to 5,000 children. They also titrated the dose down. So Moderna, an adult Moderna vaccine is 100 micrograms. They used 50 micrograms or half the dose. And they essentially showed the same thing that the Pfizer data looks like it shows, which is equivalent immune responses to young adults in the much larger trials. And so far, we just have the press release, but the press release says that the safety and tolerability was similar to what they saw in the adult trials as well. So now that we've got that data, any idea of when Moderna uh, versions of the kids' vaccine might be available? And what about J&J as well? Well, if we follow the same timeline, so Moderna in their press release says this data is going to be submitted to the FDA right away. And so that would be in the next couple of days, I would presume. So we're looking at maybe three weeks from now that the Moderna data will be reviewed. That's up to the FDA and their committee structure. And then J&J, I don't think we've seen much of anything. So, you know, we, we may not uh, get there with J&J. We'll have to sort of wait and see what, what they say. Last week, the White House announced their plans to roll out vaccines to children aged 5 to 11 in anticipation of the FDA's approval, or at least emergency authorization. Here's White House Coronavirus Response Coordinator Jeff Zeitz. Kids have different needs than adults, and our operational planning is geared to meet those specific needs, including by offering vaccinations in settings that parents and kids are familiar with and trust. Do we know where kids will be able to get the vaccine? Yeah, what you're hearing there is really an acknowledgement that parents don't want to bring kids and sit in the parking lot at Petco uh, and have mass vaccination lines there. They're much more comfortable getting vaccines in their pediatrician's office or in their family medicine doctor's office. You know, look, kids, vaccinating kids is a major part of preventative health care in pediatrics. And so why not use what's already there? And so they've had to make some adjustments in terms of shipping the vaccines, authorizing the vaccinators, and then even in something as simple as what the vial looks like and, uh, and how many doses can be given. So really focusing more on pediatricians' offices uh, where families trust uh, their pediatrician for all the other vaccines that their children receive. Earlier, you mentioned the concern about myocarditis associated with the vaccine. What can you tell us about what the data is currently saying about that? Well, I just looked it over. This is from the FDA document, and that's derived from data that Pfizer submitted to them. There were actually no reports of myocarditis or pericarditis or anaphylaxis or death in this entire trial of, I think I said, uh, almost 3,000 children in the, in the Pfizer data. So there was a concern based on what we saw, uh, the rare episodes of myocarditis in young adults and in, in teenagers and, and uh, those in their 20s. But again, by titrating the dose down, it looks like they've avoided that almost completely in this 5 to 11 age group. Vaccine hesitancy has uh, presented major challenges to health officials uh, in the last year. How are you approaching potential vaccine hesitancy when it comes to younger children? 
we've learned a lot in the last year and a half about what people need in order to feel comfortable proceeding with the vaccine. And really the number one thing is to have that discussion with their own healthcare provider. Uh, and so I think we're prepared and we're ready to have those one-on-one -on -one conversations. I think everybody expects that there's a group of parents that are just waiting to go and, and have already made up their minds, they're ready to get their children vaccinated. There's a group in the middle who are hesitant and kind of want to wait and see, maybe see a little bit more of the data or have that conversation with their pediatrician. And then there's a group that are really on the other side and really don't want to go there yet. And maybe they need a little bit more attention and to get their questions answered. And that's fine. That's a spectrum of hesitancy across the board. Uh, but suffice to say, what needs to happen is these conversations between parents and families with their own healthcare provider. I've been speaking with Dr. Christian Ramers, infectious disease specialist with Family Health Centers of San Diego and a member of the San Diego County Vaccine Clinical Advisory Group. Dr. Ramers, thank you. Thank you so much for having me. A search was planned once again over the weekend for Maya Miliete, even after the arrest last week of her husband for murder. Volunteers have been conducting searches for the 39-year-old mother of three since January, when she disappeared from her Chula Vista home. Her husband, Larry, is now in jail, charged with her murder. He pleaded not guilty. Interest has been growing in the disappearance of Miliete over the past nine months. Now her fate and her husband's arrest is a national story, but it is unfortunately not a unique story for those working to prevent domestic violence. The American Journal of Emergency Medicine reports a spike in intimate partner violence since the start of the pandemic. Joining me is Ana Serrano with Las Valientes Resource Group in San Diego. And Ana, welcome to the program. Thank you for having me. Were the pandemic lockdowns dangerous for those in abusive relationships? I think they just became more dangerous because now you're locked in doors with your abuser and you can't really go out. So it was just a very sad situation. What did your organization experience here in San Diego? Did calls for assistance increase? We did get a lot of calls. We did our best to help them. It, it was difficult because we deal with a lot of legal issues. The first couple months, we closed down. Our, our phones were always on, so a woman could always call. But the most we could do was just give her tips on how to stay safe and what to do. Just encourage her to call the police if need be, because just escaping was, it was a multifaceted problem with no easy solution. Now, people who are the victims of domestic violence often keep it to themselves. It's, it's a secret in the family. How do you help break that silence? It's just encouraging her to speak out, to say something. You know, you just you just have to find the courage to say something. The main way to break the silence is just speaking it out. And, and it's not always easy. It's one person better to tell than another. In other words, who should you talk to? It would have to be somebody that you trust. Even if they can't provide help, even if they can't really do anything, just somebody that you trust. It only gets worse when you don't say anything. But once you say something, then the door opens for help. What are the signs to look out for when you suspect that someone you know could be trapped in an abusive relationship? They're very isolated. That's one of the first things. They get isolated. If they stop coming around, if this boyfriend or significant other is always attached at their hip. They're just always there. Anna, we've heard that leaving an abusive relationship may be the most dangerous time for a victim. What precautions can a person take? 
she needs to set a plan because just leaving is dangerous. It, it's kind of like, okay, when you plan to go to war, you, you plan who you're going to go, you know, who's your enemy? What are you going to do? What are you going to take? What are you going to leave behind? Just a lot of planning. I often tell women, look, if you're going to leave, make sure you've got all your important documents that you're going to need. Get clothes for the kids, get clothes for you. Take the suitcase over to a friend's house, to a family member, somebody, somebody that you trust. Have a place to go. Where are you going? Make sure you've got everything that you need and then leave. Because if you just leave, then of course, you're, you're going to have to go back. But if you plan it and you plan, I'm going to go get a restraining order and you actually follow through, you go get that restraining order and you go someplace where you know you're going to be safe, then the chances of going back are, are slimmer. So it's just, it's a matter of planning. What do I need to take? Where am I going to go? You have to have a plan. This is Domestic Violence Awareness Month. Are there many resources for victims of domestic violence here in San Diego? Oh, there's lots of resources throughout San Diego County. There's shelters, there's, you know, the courthouse, you know, if you want to go get a restraining order. The shelters, there are a lot, but they're usually full. So it's hard to get into a shelter. But one of the things I always suggest to women is get a restraining order. You could get a kickout order. And a kickout order is uh, an order where the judge will sign a paper, the sheriffs will go out, and they'll throw him out of the house. So she can at least stay in the house or the apartment or wherever they're living. And she has about a month to decide, what do I want to do? Do I want to stay? Do I want to leave? You know, do I want to go back, live with my, my, my parents? You know, do I want to find my own place? It gives her, it gives her time. To decide what she wants to do before she goes back to court to request a permanent restraining order. Anna, you know, when cases of alleged domestic violence really hit the news, like the Miglietti case or the case of Gabby Petito, what is its effect on survivors like you? Does it trigger bad memories? You know, it depends. It depends on the woman herself. If you're far removed, like I'm far removed now, it's been over 30 years. But for women who are recent, you know, it, it does, it, it reminds you of what happened. But if you've gotten some therapy, if you've gotten some help, if you worked through whatever the issue was, you know, it, it doesn't have to be a trigger. You know, as long as you've gotten help and you got some therapy and you realize that, you know what, that was, that was then. Now, I, now I'm here. I'm safe. I'm good. I'm I made a good decision and I left. And I and I think it just it depends on the woman. I it's it's hard for me to get triggered now, super hard. For me it's more a sadness. It's more a sadness that when I hear things like that and I mean because there's nothing there's nothing that that can be done. And, and I'm sure they go and they go find help. Sometimes they go find help, some, sometimes they don't, but it just makes me sad. Is is what comes up for me. What's the best advice that you give to women in these abusive relationships? So the best advice I can give her is you're not alone. You're not alone. There is help. Reach out for help. Call me if you need to. Call me. And, you know, I'll take you by the hand. I'll walk you through the legal system. I'll walk you through a restraining order. I'll talk to you. I'll listen to you because I've been there, done that, read the book, bought the T-shirt. I get it. I understand. And it's not easy to leave. It, it is just not easy. But it can be done. 
you can leave. And remember, he's lying to you when he tells you that you need him, that you won't make it without him, that you're dumb, you're stupid, you're ugly, who would want you. They are just lies. You are worth it. You are valuable and you deserve a better life. And that's what I would tell her. I've been speaking with Ana Serrano with Las Valientes Resource Group in San Diego. Ana, thank you so much. You're very, very welcome. KPBS On Demand is supported by MaraCal Design and Remodeling, helping homeowners with their home remodeling needs. From ADUs to custom kitchen remodels and room additions, MaraCal Design and Remodeling designs and builds your dream home. Learn more at trustyourhometous.com. You're listening to KPBS Midday Edition. I'm Jade Hindman with Maureen Cavanaugh. As climate change accelerates and the impact is more apparent on our natural resources, the goal and scope of conservation is changing. For America's national parks, that goal is moving away from absolute conservation to triage. As rising temperatures transform ecosystems, the bleak reality now is that some things can be saved and some things can't. That's according to guidance handed down in May to park managers. Greg Schuerman is an ecologist and researcher with the Park Service Climate Change Response Team, who helped write the guidance. He joined us to talk about it back in May. Here's that interview. So, Gregor, how has the goal of conservation efforts changed as the effects of climate change become more pronounced? I'm keen to elaborate a little bit on that because I think it's important to understand that when we say absolute conservation, what we're really talking about is preserving everything exactly where it was as it was is difficult and becoming more so because climate is a fundamental driver of ecological conditions. So if you turn the temperature up or you change the moisture regime, you're starting to favor different species than those that have historically existed in a place. And so this sort of broader way to think about this is to recognize that we are now managing a moving picture. Nature is always in motion, but because of our influence, that motion is fast enough that we can't pretend we're managing a snapshot. And so when we talk about giving up, ideally what we're talking about is giving up on conserving perhaps a a population of a certain species in a certain place, but hopefully shifting our emphasis spatially elsewhere so that ultimately we're still committed and working towards the protection of our biodiversity heritage, but we're recognizing that we have to do it in the context of motion. On the one hand, a fairly simple point, moving picture versus a snapshot. But in terms of practice, that's the difference between saying we're going to bring back everything that used to be here to this place versus we are going to preserve everything that used to be here wherever it is in motion. It's like the rug is shifting underneath conservation's feet. And if we're going to continue to succeed, we need to learn how to dance. You've been quoted as saying the mission of the Park Service is to conserve unimpaired. How has climate change complicated that? The way that is stated is in the legislation, it's conserve unimpaired. It's also often stated as preserve unimpaired. Preserve unimpaired tends to lead people to think we mean conserve everything exactly where and how it was when we say preserve. When we say conserve, the way we interpret policy, it gives us the flexibility that we have a commitment to preserve biodiversity, to preserve our natural heritage, but it doesn't lock us into doing so exactly where and how it used to be done in the past. So it seeks flexibility. 
As you mentioned, certain conservation efforts will have to be given up so park managers can focus on more important goals. What are some of the criteria for prioritizing key conservation efforts in the near future? What we try to think about is being strategic overall. The resources that we can devote to conserving our natural heritage always will be limited uh, relative to the task. There is always more we could do with more resources. So the ultimate question is, how can we get the most conservation return for our investment, if we want to use business terms, or how can we achieve the most success with our limited resources? And ultimately, this means being strategic. And what this means is, when we choose to resist change and restore a population exactly where it was, we ought to put that under some kind of uh, microscope magnifying glass and just ask ourselves: is that going to work given what we know about how climate has changed in that place and how it will change in the future now if we can ascertain that it will right that you can bring back the corner blue butterfly let's say to a particular site and you've done your homework you can show your work then there is nothing wrong with an approach that looks like traditional conservation but increasingly we're becoming concerned with investing like we always have and perhaps not getting that return and what managers then say is gosh in that case i really would like those worker hours those dollars back so that i can save some other resource that perhaps had a better chance So it's a lot about allocation, about recognition of the finitude of our resources, and then doing the best job we can. You know, the predictions for nearby Joshua Tree National Park are particularly grim. Rising temperatures and more aggressive fire seasons uh, could result in catastrophic losses for the park. Can you tell us more about uh, that and how the guidelines will affect conservation efforts there? That is a difficult situation, and it's one that's fairly well documented. And you've got a combination there of increasing temperatures and also exotic species that are changing that fire regime. That's a really difficult situation. What one hears when one talks to the managers at Joshua Tree is both a recognition that there are places where it's going to be tough to retain the Joshua Tree within its former range. But on the other hand, there are some places, refugia, Uh, as they're called, that are somewhat sheltered uh, from these modern drivers. Um, It's important to recognize that across a landscape, not every acre has the same vulnerability. Context really matters. And so a lot of the discussion when we're here in that part of the world is about, again, being strategic and investing perhaps very heavily to resist change where it's feasible. And at the same time, again, trying to avoid wasting dollars in places that are really unlikely to uh, result in success. How important is it uh, that there be a global understanding of what's happening? When we uh, write to our peers and to managers in the peer-reviewed literature and beyond, we often emphasize the global nature of this change. And we do that for two reasons. One is it's important to understand um, that this is global and it's not just, for instance, an American problem. And so our colleagues and our peers who can help us think about this can be found around the world. So that's a huge resource in terms of a common problem with a, a great number of people all thinking about it. It's also important to understand this is a global problem because that's why we need to do the kind of thinking we do and we can't just mitigate locally. You know, other sorts of problems, one can, as I talked about earlier, fence out the bad guys, so to speak, or, or at least in one way or another, counteract some of these stressors. 
But climate change is a really tough one. And so on the one hand, as I've said, it's important to recognize nobody's alone. We're all in this together. And by that, I mean humanity. And on the other hand, it's important to realize these are big global problems that require, again, a different approach than the historical approach to resource conservation. I've been speaking with Gregor Skiermon, an ecologist and researcher with the Climate Change Response Program at the National Park Service. Gregor, thanks so much for joining us. You're very welcome, Jade. The descendants of some of Southern California's early pioneers are trying to save their ancestors' crumbling home. KVCR's Megan Jamerson has this report from East Los Angeles in the Inland Empire, where a farming town was built when California was still part of Mexico. On an industrial street in the city of Riverside, delivery trucks rumble past a small wooden building. Trujillo Adobe, built over 150 years ago in 1862. But that's not how Nancy Melendez first knew it. It was just grandma's house. Melendez is a descendant of the man that built the adobe, Lorenzo Trujillo. As we enter the wooden structure that protects it, she shares the home stayed in her family until 1957, when her great-grandmother decided it was time to live somewhere with indoor plumbing. I would come and spend the night with grandma, and, and it was a beautiful place. Um, And it seems so huge to me, you know, and I used to sit in that window, in the windowsill, and read my books. She's pointing to what's left of her great-grandmother's home, which is only three adobe walls held up by supports. The county of Riverside bought the property in 1977 with the intention of creating a local historic park. But then there were budget cuts and bad weather. The roof collapsed, followed by the fourth mud brick wall. It was the Murphy's Law, if anything could go wrong. It did. Melendez and her cousins are behind a grassroots effort started around a decade ago to save the adobe and revive park plants. They also created the Spanish Town Heritage Foundation to raise awareness of this part of California's history. It's the history of Riverside, and I like to call it Riverside's prehistory. Um, but there was this community that was here, and these people, our people, that are still here. The story starts in the 1800s, when Trujillo was born in New Mexico, a Genesaro a Native American raised in a Spanish household, most likely not by choice. As an adult, he led 10 local families over 1,200 miles to accept a promise of owning the land Melendez is standing on now. Quickly, the area became the largest non-Native Hispanic settlement between Santa Fe, New Mexico, and Los Angeles, along an old Spanish trade route. And the adobe is all that remains. And so we said, well, how can we get this story out because no one knows. This work has the support of Riverside County's Parks Department, which is renewing its commitment to raising awareness to the many ways minority communities have shaped the region, says County Historic Preservation Officer Tony Perucci. He says the adobe recognizes early settler history, but also... It can tell the story of that Northside neighborhood, which was largely Hispanic, you know, actually throughout the 20th century. Um... And we don't have historic resources that are able to tell that narrative. The biggest challenge has been finding the millions of dollars it will take. During Perucci's three years in the role, he's worked closely with Nancy Melendez and the Spanish Town Heritage Foundation as they seek out private donations and make the case for state and federal funding. The adobe is now written into the county's development plans, and this year it was named one of America's 11 most endangered historic places, says Perucci. This is very much 
you know, the Adobe's time to shine. For Melendez and her cousins, they will continue the work of sharing the story to anyone willing to listen, including local third graders. They do school presentations on the Adobe where they share the names of the settlement's first families, like the Peñas, Trujillos, Bacas, and Espinosas, says Melendez. Little eyes light up, little hands shoot up and say, that's my name! Or that's my cousin's name, that's my aunt's name. The local park would ensure generations can engage with this history and learn their place in it, says Melendez. And it is empowering because we have been made to feel that um, we don't belong. And we do. And that's important. It's, it's just, we need to knock down barriers that prevent us from communicating with one another and understanding one another. Because knowing our history, or where we come from, says Melendez, is the only way to know where we are headed. For The California Report, I'm Megan Jamerson in Riverside. Hi, I'm Bill Hohen. And I'm Ted Hohen. Over the past 50 years, our family has brought many world-class dealerships to Carlsbad, including Mercedes-Benz, Porsche, Audi, Honda, Acura, Jaguar, and Land Rover. That's right. This year, we're celebrating 50 years in Carlsbad. So on behalf of the entire Hohen family, we want to thank San Diego. Throughout the years, we've taken tremendous pride in meeting and even exceeding our customers' automotive needs. We value the relationships with our clients and look forward to serving you for years to come. We invite you to visit one of the Hohen Carlsbad dealerships or hohenmotors.com. You're listening to KPBS Midday Edition. I'm Jade Hindman with Maureen Cavanaugh. The latest James Bond film, No Time to Die, opened earlier this month, and KPBS Cinema Junkie host Beth Accomando continues her exploration of the 007 universe in part two of her podcast. She is joined by spy aficionados Gary Dexter and Jeff Quest. In this excerpt, they discuss the women in the Bond franchise. Welcome back. In part one of our discussion of Bond, James Bond, we left off discussing the formulaic elements that we expect in a 007 movie. One of the things we've come to expect are Bond girls. Now, the franchise has received considerable criticism for its depiction of women, often being called sexist, chauvinistic, and even downright misogynistic. From our current perspective, many of the early Bond films do have cringeworthy moments, like this from Goldfinger. I thought I'd find you in good hands. Felix! Felix, how are you? Dink, meet Felix Leiter. Hello. Felix, say hello to Dink. Hi, Dink. Dink, say goodbye to Felix. Hmm? Uh, man talk. Oh, and just for emphasis, Dink gets a slap on the butt from Bond. While such behavior would not be tolerated in a film today, this was 1964, and Bond was never meant to be a role model presented for people to imitate. So to ask those early films from more than a half a century ago to reflect today's attitudes is a bit unfair. And let me put this into a context from the perspective of a four-year-old girl in 1964. Mary Poppins and My Fair Lady were the top box office draws that year. Doris Day was being pushed on me as a modern woman role model. And the Beverly Hillbillies and Petticoat Junction were the top-rated TV shows. That's a pretty bleak landscape for images of women. 
So yeah, I'm much more comfortable with Pussy Galore and Diana Riggs' Tracy DiVincenzo as my 60s-era role models than Doris Day. So now let's hear from Jeff and Gary on the legacy of the Bond girls. To lead us into Jeff's comments, here's Ursula Andress emerging from Jamaican waters to reveal the very first cinematic Bond girl in 1962's Dr. No. Looking for shells? No, I'm just looking. Stay where you are. I promise I won't steal your shells. I promise you you won't either. What's your name? Ryder. Ryder what? Honey, I think we've seen Bond over the years struggle, right? Because I think it, it was very black and white back in the 60s, the way they could play these characters, I think, a little bit more. And as times have shifted, I think there's been tension in how to, how to have Bond interact with some of the, the female characters that they bring in, especially more recently. And I think... It's hard because it they want to play with that formula. They want to keep that formula in place, but it's less and less palatable to have a kind of Sean Connery era style in in modern times. And I agree with that. You know, I think there's been some you know, you had Michelle Yao as as one of the the Bond female characters. Would you pause this soap? Over there. You were pretty good with that hook. It comes from growing up in a rough neighborhood. Uh-huh. You were pretty good on the bike. Well, that comes from not growing up at all. <laughs> Here, allow me. Don't get any ideas, Mr. Bond. Just off the cuff, I thought we might link up. Work hand in hand? Stick closer to each other. Yeah. Maybe we go after General Chang together. Your turn. Thanks for washing my hair. I work alone. The Bond female characters, uh, Halle Berry, I think they were different in, in the way that they were trying to portray them with uh, Brosnan. Are you going to get me off this thing? What are you, CIA? NSA. Hello? We're on the same side. Doesn't mean we're after the same thing. Sure it does. World peace, unconditional love, and your little friend with the expensive acne. More recently, you know, you see with Daniel Craig, they've done some different things, especially in Casino Royale, where they're trying to make this a darker character and give some more nuance to some of the people that they're bringing in, some of the female leads. By the cut of your suit, you went to Oxford or wherever. and actually think human beings dressed like that. But you were it with such disdain. My guess is you didn't come from money, and your school friends never let you forget it. Which means you were at that school by the grace of someone else's charity, hence the chip on your shoulder. And since your first thought about me ran to orphan, that's what I'd say you are. Well, you are. <laughs> I like this poker thing. And that makes perfect sense. Since MI6 looks for maladjusted young men, I give little thought to sacrificing others in order to protect queen and country. So I think it's a, a delicate dance that they've been walking, and I don't know if they've been successful all the time, but I... I appreciate their struggle with it i guess well of course the thing that we've seen go away mercifully is the uh, is the casual violence against the female characters james you're hurting i'll do worse than that if you don't tell me you're doing this under orders i know what are they i don't know what you mean liar ah! it's fairly commonplace in uh, in the connery era and, and even the very early roger era although i know that 
from interviews with Moore himself. He found that very distasteful. I think we've had a few decades where it would be the cliche for the actresses that had been given the roles, have won the roles, to say, well, I'm going to be a different kind of uh, Bond girl, as they used to be known. And then we'd get to the movie and find that, well, no, unfortunately, they weren't that different. I do think that a lot of the villainess, if you like, roles, or the female henchmen, I'm thinking of Xenia Onotop in particular. You don't need the gun, Commander. That depends on your definition of safe sex. It's close enough. Not for what I have in mind. Particularly strong characters and, and, you know, even Pussy Galore, very ambiguous, semi-villainess. Well, won't you join me? Not on duty. I'm Mr. Goldfinger's personal pilot. You are? And uh, just how personal is that? I'm a damn good pilot. Period. Well, that's good news. This should be a memorable flight. You can turn off the charm. I'm immune. They've been stronger and actually more of Bond's equals. And I think we're moving to a time now, and we'll see how they do with No Time to Die, where we're finally actually going to see women on a par with Bond. We've got a woman of colour carrying the 007 role, and from what we've seen in the trailers, that's going to be um, a genuine equal. In trouble? Constantly. Nomi is probably one of the only few women and also women of colour in MI6 and in the Double O programme. The women that you see in this movie will very clearly reflect the kind of women that are in the world today and being badasses at that. I think that's the way it should be going forward. I mean, we don't want Bond to be overly realistic, but we need it to be plausible. And I think there needs to be more of a recognition that espionage operations are team efforts and that there will be other significant agents involved. And even going back to The Living Daylights, when we've seen more of them than most other movies, you don't see a lot of other double O's in Bond. And whilst you want to focus on Bond as our main man, our protagonist and our sort of doorway into that universe, it would be very interesting to see, I think, other double O's in a team context in a Bond movie. We may be about to get that, I hope so. That was Beth Accomando speaking with Gary Dexter and Jeff Quest. To listen to the full Cinema Junkie podcast, James Bond Part 2, go to kpbs.org slash cinemajunkie. Chocolate is something you can fall in love with. It's a big part of our favorite celebrations from Halloween to Valentine's Day. Chocolate is something Chef Christophe Roux fell in love with, and just this month, the San Marcos pastry chef has been named the U.S. Chocolate Master. Chef Rule is now moving on to the World Chocolate Masters competition in Paris next year. It's a pleasure to welcome America's chocolate king, Christophe Rule. And Christophe, welcome to the show. Hi, thank you for having me. Has winning this chocolate competition been a dream of yours? Always, since uh, the beginning of my career, I've been uh, uh, watching and following uh, those kind of competition. Uh, this one, the World Chocolate Master, is one of the biggest uh, competition in my field. And it's something that you always look out as a, as a young student when you start the culinary school and when you uh, look at those guys and see what they are capable to do with their hand and chocolate. And you're like, it's like a dream. You're like, there is no way that you can do that in chocolate. But yes, there is a way. And uh, uh, since uh, since the beginning, I was like, uh, okay, if one day I will get to that level, uh, that will be really a, a great achievement. And uh, 
And here I am. I just uh, spent uh, uh, the last couple of years training on uh, on this competition for only the national selection. Due to COVID, uh, the competition has been postponed a little bit. Uh, so we had one more year to uh, to get ready for it. Me two years to uh, to train on five different assignments and. Uh, I spent two days in Chicago about a couple of weeks ago, and uh, at the end of those two days, uh, I've been I've been selected to represent America next year in France. Now, as people can probably tell by listening to you, you were born in France. You started cooking in France, became a pastry chef, eventually came to the Park Hyatt in Carlsbad, and there you started making chocolate sculptures. What were they like? During these five years, I was. Uh, uh, designing a huge Christmas display. So one year it was a big chocolate train inside the snow globe. There is another year we did a, a life-size uh, gingerbread house with a huge Christmas tree. And I brought back my uh, team from Halloween World because I've been on Food Network and we got lucky enough to uh, to win the whole uh, competition. So amazing time. And uh, I love I love my time working in Park Hyatt. It was a pretty amazing experience. Now, for the semifinal Chocolate Master competition, you created some incredible chocolate creations. Can you tell us about one or two of them? I am an ocean lover, and uh, and I know how important uh, the ocean is for the human and for the, the planet. And uh, so I really focus on that theme. So one of them was uh, a big chocolate uh, showpiece, beautiful coral on the bottom. Uh, and on the top, uh, you had a, a manta ray. And the Mantari was a kind of like a representation of uh, of the future, of what we could do to save the ocean. So that was one of the assignments. And uh, I think one of the assignments that really, really pleased the judges was a sea coral. So I collaborate with uh, a local artist in uh, Karlsbad, and uh, we collaborate for about a couple months uh, to create a coral plate, handmade, and uh, deep into different uh, sort of glaze. And on the top of that, it was a little uh, kind of like representation of a sea urchin, uh, but it was sweet. What is it about chocolate that inspires you? It's really artistic. Uh, there is a way to uh, express ourselves throughout uh, just a piece of chocolate. It's just uh, beautiful what you can do. And it's an art. And also, who doesn't like chocolate, right? I mean, I don't know too many people who are going to tell me, oh, I hate chocolate. I had never heard about that. Now, you've been on, as you say, quite a, quite a few TV cooking competitions, Halloween Wars, Holiday Wars on the Food Network. You're now on a show called Bake Squad on Netflix. Why do you like these cooking competitions? Well, uh, honestly, it's just, it's just a challenge. And uh, I'm not picking up every single competition that is out there because uh, I think I need to pick something that is kind of a representation of my personality. When I've been called to Halloween War, it was to be a sugar artist and uh, I love working with sugar as much as I love working with chocolate. So I'm like, okay, well, why why not? And uh, actually, I learned a lot from this show. Being able to uh, team up with uh, a cake artist, a pumpkin carver. I mean, it's not something that I'm used to. And the learning opportunities that you can get throughout the show is amazing. Of course, you think about the exposure. That's one thing, because down the road, my goal is to certainly maybe open a, a pastry school. And I would love to open a pastry school uh, around San Marcos area or San Diego around this area. There is no great pastry school as of today. Uh, so I would love to uh, to be able to, to do that down the road. Uh, Bake Squad, that was uh, just uh, also another uh, opportunity. And that's amazing. It's just doing your, your passion and share it with the rest of the world. So I, I would say, why not? Instead of being hidden on your kitchen and... Uh, not uh, not showing 
the capability of what uh, a pastry chef or a baker can do. I thought it was just amazing opportunity to be able to be there and uh, give your best and just showing to the to the rest of the world. How are you training for next year's World Chocolate Masters event? Well, honestly, uh, that's been only a couple of weeks that I just passed the, the national and I already started training the class that has just been in Las Vegas is part of the training. Uh, I learned a few techniques that I can incorporate for the final in Paris. I uh, decided to uh, resign from my position in the Parcaya Taviera to fully focus uh, only on the competition. So that's what I, I'm going to do. I'm going to train uh, with uh, a two-time world pastry champion in Tustin, and uh, I'm going to spend one full year of uh, teaching classes at time, but most likely train for the final of the World Chocolate Master. Now, if you win, you'll be the first person representing the U.S. to win. Is that important to you? That's correct. That will be uh, amazing. Great achievement. I mean, when you think about it, it's having the possibility to enter the history of uh, the World Chocolate Master and America. That will be, uh, yeah, that will, that will definitely be something huge. Christophe, after all the years of creating chocolate masterpieces, do you still just enjoy eating a piece of chocolate? Oh, I love it. Of course, not every day. This is not going to be my uh, uh, go-to uh, snack every single day, but I can say no to chocolate. So I love it. it. But you know, when you work in a kitchen, in a pastry, um, I'm more kind of a guy of eating a savory and really enjoy like a good uh, platter of a charcuterie or uh, of our cheese and uh, with, a, with a glass of wine here and there. Then uh, a big fan about pastry. I love doing it because the artistry of it, and because you can create emotion and uh, create memories on uh, on, on people's uh, uh, life. Uh, but as far as my preferences, I will more enjoy savory food. Well, I've been speaking with Chef Christophe Roule, and congratulations and good luck as you move on to the World Chocolate Masters competition next year. Thank you so much. Hi, I'm Bill Hohen. And I'm Ted Hohen. Over the past 50 years, our family has brought many world-class dealerships to Carlsbad, including Mercedes-Benz, Porsche, Audi, Honda, Acura, Jaguar, and Land Rover. That's right. This year we're celebrating 50 years in Carlsbad. So on behalf of the entire Hohen family, we want to thank San Diego. Throughout the years, We've taken tremendous pride in meeting and even exceeding our customers' automotive needs. We value the relationships with our clients and look forward to serving you for years to come. We invite you to visit one of the Hohen Carlsbad dealerships or hohenmotors.com.